You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Hello everyone, it's Takuyi here. And I'm Gabby. And we are the hosts of History of Everything, a podcast which you can probably guess by the name is, well, I mean, it's about everything. Do you want to know why people thought potatoes were evil and would give you syphilis? Are you curious about all the stories of the terrible and stupid ways that people have kicked the bucket over the years? Do you want to hear tales about all of the different badasses of history and the lives that they had brought to life? Well, if so, then look no further. History of Everything is just the right podcast for you. It's available on Spotify, Pandora, and anywhere else that you get your podcast from. Join us for some fun and just see how weird and wacky history can be. This episode is brought to you by our Patreon members. Thank you so much. You're the reason this podcast is still going. If everyone who listened to this podcast gave just $1 a month, we could both turn this podcast into a full-time job and be certain that we could keep it going throughout the pandemic and keep bringing you more episodes. It would be a win for everyone. If you're not a member and you're able to donate, go to patreon.com slash ancienthistoryfangirl. Members get ad-free episodes, extra episodes about fascinating topics, and hilarious, mostly drunken conversations we've had with other podcasters and guests. Go to patreon.com slash ancienthistoryfangirl and sign up today to join the fun. If you're not scaring the children, are you even Krampusing? Ladies, Christmas fans, this one goes out there to all of you, all of us who work so hard to make Christmas the wonder and magical time that it is, and the reality that no matter how hard we work, someone, somewhere is judging us. Hit me with some of that sweet, sweet, judgy holiday fanfiction. It is not enough. The cold, dark nights draw in, and all you can think as you lie beneath the furs of your cold marriage bed is it is not enough. Your husband has only recently returned from long months away, warring and wenching, leaving you with the children, all five of them, and the difficult work of preparing for Yule. Your youngest child is just four months old, and she will not sleep, will not nurse. It is as if she does not want to live. And a dark part of you, the part that lies awake at night mentally portioning out your meager rations, wonders if you should bother forcing the babe to nurse. Resources are limited, and the winter has only just begun. When your husband is home, he acts as if nothing is wrong. He is all smiles. The children run to him and greet him with joy. They have never greeted you that way. He has been very successful on his last campaign and has brought home luxuries that will make the winter easier. They will make Yule special, but they will not last forever. And then he goes away again, before the times get too lean before you have to make difficult decisions again. Your house is a mess. You and your two oldest daughters have done nothing but spin flax. You've worked hard to get the spinning done before Yule, but there are still scraps and bits of flax all over the floor that you know you've left unfinished. You and your daughters have decorated, scrubbed, and prepared your home for guests who will drop by over the festive twelve days. Your hands are cracked and raw from the cold water you've been using to cook and clean, and yet you know there is still so much more to do. Your sons have been raiding the larder all week, dipping their hands into the freshly churned butter and trying to sneak off with double portions. 
they have been impossible to corral, refusing to do their chores and leaving you and your daughters to pick up the extra work. Your voice is hoarse from begging the boys to help. Your husband has been encouraging them, telling you that you worry too much, that it is nearly Yule. Let them have a little fun, a little extra. They are growing boys. But you know the truth. There is no little extra. After the feasting is over, after the drinking and celebrating is done, there will be precious little to last you through the dark winter, and it has never been your husband's responsibility to worry about these things. He has been out all day with the men, felling a huge tree, preparing the yule log, slaughtering the animals for the feast. He does not know what it is like, trapped in these walls, knowing that every joy you have now, you will have to pay for later on. Your husband finally comes in for the night. He sinks into bed beside you, heavy with drink. He drapes a strong arm over your hip, and you find yourself leaning into him, wanting this comfort, wishing to tell him all your fears, to hear him tell you you are an exceptional wife and mother. Maybe you'll wear your hair that way you haven't worn in years. You close your eyes just for a minute. You don't know how long you doze, but you know what wakes you. The dancing light across the sky. It flashes across the room, unearthly blues, greens, and purples. Then you hear the wind and the calls upon it, the sounds of the wild hunt, and you are totally still, your husband asleep like the dead beside you. You hear the sound of something, a tree branch, or maybe long, scrabbling claws, scraping against the side of your window. You hold your breath. You pray it isn't her. You pray that you have managed, against all odds, to have kept your home and your family up to her exacting standards. You pray that she will be merciful. You hear the window slide open, and you are utterly frozen. Your limbs won't move. You are pinned to the bed. You can barely draw breath. You see the long shadows stretch across the floor, the twisted shape, the hooked nose, the glint of the knife in her hand and you know there will be no mercy. I'm Jen McVenemy. And I'm Jenny Williamson. And this is Ancient History Fangirl, the creepy seasonal edition. Creepy seasonal! <laughs> so apparently we're now combining <laughs> Halloween and the holidays to bring you the creepy seasonal holiday dream episode of Jen's Dreams. <laughs> it's like a fever dream for me. I love it so much. <laughs> that whole intro was absolutely a fever dream. <laughs> this year. We decided that the holiday season wouldn't be complete without a mythological foray into one of the most famous characters of the festive season, the Krampus. <clears throat> the Krampus. <laughs> oh yeah, I give, I give him the formal title. The festive holiday demon. <laughs> and I know that some of you listening, you Christmas nerds or festive nerds like me, are saying, wait a minute, the Krampus isn't ancient. He's kind of modern, and you're an ancient history podcast. Also. Everyone knows about the Krampus, the demon of Christmas, the festive holiday demon. So why on earth are you covering this well-trodden topic? Why? Okay, let me school you in the art of the Krampus. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> First, Krampus's roots are very ancient. Second, wait until you hear the wild things we uncovered about him, and then make your judgments about how well-trodden this topic actually is. We predict that most of you are going to learn a thing or two, even if you are full-on Krampus groupies. 
Look, I went for the deep cuts here. You're going to learn something. That's what this podcast is about, really. It's about that nerdy deep dive that like anyone else would tell you and you'd be like, that's real nerdy. And then we tell you and you're like, that's real dark and interesting and also real nerdy, but dark and interesting. So (laughs) a few years ago, I love how you gave me this one paragraph, which is all about your research methods. (laughs) I know, but the problem with it was like, otherwise I'm just like talking for like 20 minutes. I'm going to tell you all about Jen's Krampus process, okay? How she arrived at having to tell you guys about the Krampus. So a few years ago when Jen was researching our Yule episode, which I believe went up two years ago. Yeah, because last year was Mithras with the pee drinking. Um, so anyway, a few years ago when Jen was researching our Yule episode, she came across a mention of Krampus. And being the insufferable Christmas nerd that Jen is, because she is, oh my god, I just, I can't help that you don't understand my deep and abiding love for Christmas. She loves Christmas, you guys. I totally understand that this is a hard time for people. And what I love about Christmas and what I love about Krampus in particular is that, like, you can find some real dark, creepy ghost stories. And just, you know, if you don't like the hallmarky, lovey, all that stuff, lean into the dark of the season. It's the dark. The goth of Christmas, really. Yeah. So Jen, being the Christmas nerd that she is, already knew a lot about Krampus, but... Any chance she could get to go down a mythological or historical rabbit hole, you know and I know that Jen is going to have to take that historical rabbit hole and we're just not going to see her again for another two years. That's how it works. (laughs) So she found out a lot about Krampus, so much that Jen knew she couldn't put him into the Yule episode because that episode was already crammed with fascinating characters and stories and Krampus would have made that episode like three hours. So we knew we had to make it a different episode. Yeah, and also, aren't you happy that it's not in that episode? Two episodes! I got to do a whole blowing up of the Krampus's life. I agree. I think at this point, because we're weekly, we need two episodes whenever possible. So anyway, Jen bookmarked the research she found on him, and she she decided she'd come back another day, i.e. maybe in two years. And when I came back to the story of Krampus, I was surprised by just how deeply the origins of this ancient holiday demon are rooted in the celebration of Yule, the ancient Yule celebration. So, without any further bigging up of my research abilities and me as a person, let's discuss the Krampus. So, I do want to pause for a second and talk about what are we drinking right now. Jen, are you drinking the legendary White Rabbit? Is it going to be that kind of an episode? Well, (laughs) after being... Not too tipsy for Mithras and talking a lot about pee drinking. I decided, because so many of you have tweeted us how much you loved how tipsy I was for Yule, that this year I would once again imbibe in the legendary White Rabbit. She's indulging, you guys. How excited are you? I'm excited. In fact, I started drinking an hour ago just so that I would be, like, on the same level as Jen when we started recording. I have literally had half a drink. Jenny is trashed. (laughs) (laughs) I am not trashed, but I am tipsy. (laughs) Right. Can we tell them about who the Krampus is now? Yes, please. Tell us who the Krampus is. Before we go too far into the ancient roots of Krampus, let's dive into the modern Krampus. In modern culture, Krampus is the demon of Christmas, primarily from the folklore of the Central and Eastern Alps. He is terrifying to behold. He's huge, very tall, with horns, tusks, the hairy body of a goat man, and a face that looks like it's perpetually locked in a scream or a snarl. He looks exactly like a cross between a satyr and the Christian devil, but really, really big. He's got a super long tongue. Like, his his long tongue is real wild. (laughs) The Krampus would bang or not. Check yes or no. (laughs) 
Oh, the Krampus knows how to use that tongue. <laughs> so the Krampus is a companion to St. Nicholas or Father Christmas or Santa Claus. He roams the earth on Krampus Nacht or Krampus Night, which is December 5th. And that is the night before St. Nicholas Day. While he roams the earth, he leaves coal in the shoes or stockings of bad children. Yes, that coal is from the Krampus, not Santa Claus. So question, St. Nicholas Day is December 6th? Is that like a Christian feast day? Yes, it's the Feast of St. Nicholas. He's a Christian saint, I believe. Yeah. That is totally not at all like a significant date in my Christmas lexicon personally, but I'm a heathen, so. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's not either. I feel like the Feast of St. Nicholas is a lot more celebrated in the Alps and Germany and Bavaria and those areas. So like it is a much bigger thing there. Yeah. So the Krampus's job is to scare children into being good. He's not inherently an evil creature, but he certainly plays one in holiday parades. You can see the Krampus alongside Father Christmas, or, you know, Santa Claus, marching side by side in holiday parades in places like Germany, Switzerland, and Austria, to name but a few places. And there's a reason for that. Father Christmas, um, Santa Claus, is the good or light side of the holiday. He's the joy and the presence and the brightness. Krampus is the darker side. He's the dark long nights, the wild howling wind, the terrors of the outside creeping in, that asshole who's keeping an eye on what you're doing with your life and judging you if you put a toe out of line. He's the consequences for being a naughty child or a naughty adult. And those consequences are kind of dire. Krampus's punishment could be anything from, I don't know, getting a lump of coal in your shoe to getting beaten with a rod or branches, good lord. Or even being thrown into Krampus's sack or basket and then dragged to literal hell. And Krampus is sometimes depicted with, like, birch rods or a sack because that's what he did to people. You might spend a year with Krampus before you were freed. Or you might be drowned or thrown into a pot to become Krampus's Christmas lunch at some point because it's always Christmas where Krampus is from. <laughs> Krampus knocked. <laughs> Krampus knocked. <laughs> So Krampus has been having a huge comeback in popular culture over the last two decades. I do feel like there was a period a few years ago where Krampus was real big. He was huge. And I remember thinking, we should do an episode on him. And then I was like, nah, he's too big. Let's do something else. So after a period of demonization by the Christian religion, this dark side of Yule is finally returning to the spotlight and sharing the true meaning of Christmas. The impending wild hunt and demonic invasion that can only be stopped by good behavior and porridge. I'm Helena Bonham Carter, and for BBC Radio 4, this is History's Secret Heroes, a new series of rarely heard tales from World War II. They had no idea that she was Britain's top female codebreaker. We'll hear of daring risk-takers. What she was offering to do was to ski in over the high Carpathian mountains. Of course it was dangerous, but uh, danger was his friend. Subscribe to History's Secret Heroes wherever you get your podcasts. So Krampus's roots are muddled. Some claim that he was the son of Hell, the Norse goddess of death who ruled Niflheim, or the world of darkness, essentially the Norse version of the underworld or Hell. And according to this tradition, Krampus was an old and ancient demon who walked the earth during Yule, although this has largely been dispelled, but we can't exactly know. In order to understand what this means, you have to go back to our Yule episode. 
In that episode, we explained some of the traditions around the ancient festival, and one of those traditions had to do with Odin and his wild hunt. And luckily, we recently re-aired that episode for your convenience, so if you haven't listened to it, go ahead and listen to it. So, the wild hunt is a spectral hunting party that streaks across the skies or stalks the earth during the winter months. It was frequently linked in Norse mythology with the aurora borealis, but it's also a Celtic phenomenon. It's just slightly different in Celtic mythology. The otherworldly hunting party of Norse legend is led by Odin in his great black hat with his long white beard and one eye. He's kind of like a one-eyed Gandalf. He's kind of like an evil Santa. (laughs) That too. Riding his eight-legged spider horse, followed by a contingent of demons, spirits, monsters, gods, and goddesses. If you get caught outside at night during the wild hunt, it's possible that you would be taken up into it, perpetually forced to reenact the hunt for eternity. It was kind of like a time loop. It was a real fear in ancient times that you could be caught outside at night and wind up a part of this haunted spectral horror show. And this fear was probably linked to the dangers of being caught outside at night during the long, cold Scandinavian winters which might mean freezing to death from exposure, getting lost in the woods, and being eaten by wild animals, or worse. What is the worse? I don't know. But I'm sure there's worse out there. Falling through uh, some ice. Being taken up into the wild hunt. I'm sorry. That doesn't sound like fun to me. These are all things that could happen to you in the woods in the wintertime. Between unexplained disappearances and the screaming wind that howled around the eaves during harsh Scandinavian winters, you can see where the idea of the wild hunt came from in mythology. Oh, yeah. I mean, we both grew up on the east coast of America. I grew up on Long Island. And when you get some of those storms that come in and rattle your house, like our house used to sound like a train was like running through it and screaming like a train whistle when we get these really awful nor'easters. And like, Obviously, we knew what that was, but if you didn't know what that was, could see how it'd be scary. If you have this mythology attached to it, you know, yeah. Even as a modern person, I- I've had many times where I've wondered, like, is my house going to make it through this? <laughs> like, 80 miles an hour, that- that's a lot of wind and a lot of rain. Like, are we going to be okay? So the wild hunt was probably an explanation for those who were lost to the brutal winters the elements and the wild animals that most likely roamed closer to people in search of food during the dark and desperate months. And according to legend, one member of the wild hunt, a creature caught flying across the sky or touching down to earth to devour the occasional mortal, was our pal, the Krampus. But here's the thing, he's not exactly our pal as we recognize him today. It's actually possible that the Krampus we know of now, the horrifying goat man, was originally a goddess. Some folklorists believe that Hell wasn't his mother. Modern scholarship actually links the Krampus more closely with the Yule goat and a particular alpine goddess. To understand what we mean, we have to tell you about the ancient goddess Perkta. Perkta is an ancient, fascinating goddess. Her mythology was most likely solidified during the early Middle Ages. She is a combination of Germanic, pre-Germanic, possibly Celtic, and Alpine customs. Perkta, whose name might mean bright one, is a goddess with a dual nature. She had two very different forms. One was a beautiful maiden with fair hair who glowed and essentially looked kind of like a cross between Freya or Frigga and Elsa from Frozen. She was otherworldly beautiful. Stunningly beautiful, of course she was. She was a goddess. 
She rewarded children who did all their chores with a silver coin in their shoes during the 12 days of Christmas or the 12 days of Yule, which is probably closer to what it would have been at that time. Yeah, it would have been the 12 days of Yule. Yeah. She was a goddess of spinning and paid special attention to the amount of spinning flax that women had accomplished over the holidays because, as much as she liked to reward, Perkta also had another side, a darker side. Perkta's dark side was all about the punishment. The other side of Perkta, often called Ugly Perkta, took the form of an old crone with a weathered and lined face that sometimes looked a little like a Krampus mask. She had a beaked, hooked iron nose, she was dressed in rags, she carried a cane, and she had one extra large foot. And if you failed to get your spinning done before Yule, a time when traditionally spinning would be done for the year, Perkta made a mental note to visit your house. If you were a naughty child who didn't do your chores and work, Perkta noticed. If your house was a mess, not clean and tidy for Yule, Perkta was ready to judge you. If you forgot to leave out a bowl of porridge for Perkta during Yule, you'd better watch out. Yeah, and I'm also going to add here, just in case you guys weren't picking this up, Perkta judged children and women. Her judgment was gendered. She was really quite harsh in her judgment, man. There was no room to be anything other than perfect. And to me, you see that a lot in the pressure we put on ourselves to have the perfect Christmas, to do everything right, to win at Christmas. Like, it goes all the way back to the ancient roots. I don't necessarily see any points where she judges and punishes men for doing things, but it was specifically about children either not behaving or not doing their work and women who were not doing their work. Like women who were seen as slovenly, who didn't keep a clean house, who left their flax by the fire, whose children acted up, you know, women who weren't domestic goddesses, basically. And also women who, in this instance, maybe didn't have control of their children. So they were in a situation where their children were just kind of running riot. And, you know, if you got your children in order, your house would be clean. You know, you'd run a very tight ship. But obviously, for many reasons, like we had in our cold open, like, sometimes that's just not how it works. Like, we need to not put so much pressure on ourselves to be perfect, Perkta. Come on. Also, maybe the men could contribute a little here. Just a thought. Exactly. I gave the husband an excuse of being off warring, but like a lot of times husbands didn't war. They were farmers. They were not going anywhere. So Perkta, why are you not judging them? So later, when Christianity started to overlap with the older pagan cultures, if you ate anything except a meal of fish and gruel on Perkta's feast day, January 8th or the Feast of the Epiphany, it was on. That was like dropping your gloves and being like, come on, Perkta, let her So here's what punishment from Perkta could look like. Perkta led her own wild hunt during the 12 days of Christmas, or the days between Christmas and the Epiphany, or Twelfth Night. She had her own followers called Perkton, which is plural for Perkta, just in case you're wondering. And Perkta did not tolerate bad behavior. No, she did not. She especially didn't like people who'd been slacking in their work all year long, and women who were anything less than domestic goddesses. I suspect that the whole domestic goddess thing came later when Christianity began to creep into these traditions. But nevertheless, the stories go that Perkta liked it when you kept a tidy house and hated it when you didn't. During the 12 days of Christmas, or Yule, Perkta would visit the homes around the countryside if you kept a tidy home, ate the appropriate food, left out a nice plate of porridge, definitely add in some honey and cinnamon or dried fruit because... She likes a bit of a kick, she likes some dried fruit, put some effort in. And your kids were good, then you got a nice silver coin. You 
are one of the privileged special ones, one of the favored children you got to see, the bright and beautiful Perkta. But if your house was a mess, if you ate anything other than the right food on Perkta's feast day, if your kids were kind of a nightmare, well, then you got a visit from ugly Perkta. What I want to say is that whole feast day thing, that to me is like your Christian monk is showing. Having grown up very Catholic, as I've said many times, there are certain days in which you are supposed to eat certain things that go back through the church. So my guess is that these Perkta feast days are about the church overlapping and having more control over what you did and didn't do on what they considered to be their holy days. Right. So like these dietary restriction issues came up when Christianity started to be more of a big thing. That's my guess. So anyway, ugly Perkta would creep into your house at night, carrying a cane and a long knife. First, she'd trash your spinning room. Then she would slip into your bedroom while you were sleeping, slit open your belly, remove your intestines, and fill you full of straw or pebbles. Other stories say she just straight up set you on fire. She didn't even wait. She's like, fire, kids. Yeah, any way you look at it, it was a horrible death. I mean, this strikes me as quite extreme, Jen. So it's probably worth pausing for a minute to think about the whole setting people on fire method of death. It's not difficult to imagine that during the cold winter months, house fires increased. And this was for lots of reasons, including the increased reliance on fires to keep your house warm, as well as seasonal things like the proliferation of flammable seasonal greenery and that giant yule log that literally stuck out into your living room. Go and listen to our Yule log, our Yule episode, to get more of a sense of what kind of household we're talking about here. Yeah, the Yule log was so big that it was supposed to burn for 12 days. And in some traditions, it was an actual tree that had to be moved continually into the fireplace as it burned. And I'm sorry, that is a huge fire hazard. Yeah, and if you think about a log that has to burn continuously for 12 days, like, that actually has to be a real giant log. Like, I grew up in a log cabin with a wood stove that was basically the heat for the house. And, like, one log, like, a decent-sized log will last maybe a day, you know, with a good fire. Like, it's not—it doesn't last for a long time. The size of a log that has to last for 12 days, I mean, that is kind of a small tree in my head. Yeah. And, you know— People are now cramped into tight spaces. You've got lots of people visiting. You may even have some of the animals in your home if it's super cold. There would be a real need to keep your house super tidy and to make sure that there was no flammable like substances like flax or wool near these open flames. And you'd have to have really good hygiene to keep disease from breaking out and to ensure that you were able to celebrate Yule safely. Because in reality, your home during the winter, but particularly during the Yule, was a petri dish for spreading diseases and illness and also a huge fire hazard. And without modern things like smoke detectors, it's easy to assume that an increase in house fires during the winter may have fueled the Perkta myth. So this is where the Perkta myth most likely comes from. Keep a tidy home. Tuck away all that flammable stuff or else get set on fire. This theory does put so much pressure on women. But again, let's think about who was chronicling this story and who was perpetuating this myth. I believe you can easily see the Christian monk showing here. And I wanted to also just like talk a little bit about going back to our Yule episode. I want to talk about children and Yule. And there's a lot of mythology here with children not being greedy, children not misbehaving, children not like taking food that they're not supposed to have. And when we when we looked in the Yule episode, we had Gorilla and the Yule lads. They each had like a silly prank that they did. And it was all around like various ways to steal food. 
steal food, steal little things, leave doors open. I mean, very much the kind of stuff that you'd imagine little kids would do and then get yelled at by their parents. And, you know, it always reminds me of like my grand, my grandmother and grandpa used to say growing up, like whenever anything went wrong, all of us kids would be like, nobody did it. And they're like, this guy, nobody, really. They do all the bad stuff in the house. Who's this nobody? In some households, it was the Yule lads. Exactly. And that's kind of that's kind of what, what we're seeing here. But what Perkta does and her role here is she's there to scare and punish children into behaving. And that makes a lot of sense because at this point in time, there would be extra feasting and food and stuff going around. But there's never that much, you know. You're always worried what you have now you won't have later. Exactly. And I think that's what your cold open showed beautifully, like the worries of somebody who actually has to orchestrate all this stuff, thinking about whatever good time we have now, we're going to have to pay for it later. Like we're going to have a feast now and we're going to have lean times for the next couple of months to pay for it. These children can't just go around stealing food. And of course, everybody's hungry. The kids are hungry. They're going to steal food that they're not supposed to have if it's out in the open like that. Yeah. And I think one of the things that I had growing up as a as a kid is like I'm the oldest of three and money was always tight. And like before Christmas, for the most part, like it was peanut butter sandwiches for the month. There was a couple of times you might get like some nice treats. But the reality was like we were waiting until Christmas because all the money was going to having a nice Christmas. And I think, you know, that's a real thing that the Perkta is trying to enforce like, okay, you're not going to have nice things now, but you're going to have nice things in a couple of days. And I think in our modern society, sometimes we forget that like Christmas is kind of a month long orgy of spending and buying and doing. But like, actually, for a lot of people, it was like, kind of a month of things being really tight until the until the feasting happened. So that's what it looked like when Perkta visited your house. But Perkta didn't go out alone during Yule. As we mentioned earlier, she had her own hunting party made up of beings called the Perkton. So the Perkton, much like Perkta, were dual-natured. They could either be bright and beautiful, and in this form they were called the Sean Perkton, and they were said to bring good fortune and wealth to whoever they visited. But if you had been naughty, if you had been stealing that food, if you'd been leaving your flax by the fire and not keeping a tidy home... If you'd been a kid leaving all those doors open and skiving off your chores and your work and just not doing what you had to do... Stealing them sausages. Oh, those! now I want sausages, you know. <laughs> you would so be an ugly Perkton target. That is when the ugly Perkton or Shial Perkton, did I pronounce that right? Or Shiak Perkton, apologies to anyone from the Alps, or Shiak Perkton would arrive at your door. These were creatures with fangs, horse tails, the bodies of goats, and huge tusks. These terrifying creatures were said to drive away evil spirits and demons, so as much as they looked scary, they were actually performing a service. They were helping to keep you safe from the darker creatures of the wild hunt, and these Shockperkton looked a lot like our modern depictions of Krampus. Hairy goat demon creatures with horns and tusks, long tongues, and terrifying eyes. It's very probable that Krampus is directly descended from the Shiak Perkton in appearance and Perkta in his deeds. In this way, Perkta and her hunting party performed some of the same roles as Father Christmas or Santa Claus and the Krampus would come to embody in our modern times. Perkta both punished bad behavior and rewarded good behavior. She was a powerful figure in folklore, and she even had her own parade. And it's possible that, as we said, Krampus evolved from depictions of the ugly Perkton combined with Perkta herself. But that's not the only origin for the Krampus that has been proposed. 
Let's look at another way scholars have theorized that the Krampus came down the ages to us. Yeah, so basically the theoretical origins of the Krampus have three distinct roots. One of those roots is Norse, and it's like he's related to Hel, the goddess of the underworld in, in Norse mythology. The other is kind of Alpine, and that is that he's related to Perkta and the Perkton. And the third possible origin story is the one we're about to tell you. Thank you, Drunk Jenny, for the recap. <laughs> drunk Jenny is going to drunkenly explain what we just said to you. Hold up. <laughs> so Perkta and her Perktons may be a clue to where the modern Krampus comes from. Is the modern Krampus derived directly from a dual goddess? Is Perkta maybe the original Mother Christmas? I'm throwing it out there. Mother Claus. A woman who did both the jobs of Santa Claus and Krampus? I mean, yes, obviously, but also that's probably oversimplifying the complexity of the Alpine goddess. She did lots of shit, including leading a band of spirits to bless or terrify your village, as I always want to do in the winter. Who doesn't? However, this isn't the only possibility for the origins of the Krampus. The other place we may draw the modern Krampus from is the ancient tradition of the Yule Goat. <laughs> tell you about the Yule Goat. We have also covered this in our Yule episodes, so some of this might be a little bit of a repeat here, but we're just going to tell you anyway because the Yule Goat is fascinating. The Yule Goat was another delightful surprise that Jen came across while she was researching Yule. According to Norse mythology, Thor, the god of thunder, had a sleigh that was pulled across the sky by two goat bucks, or male goats. I'm getting... Santa vibes right now. Thor had a beard, but it was a big red beard, not a white beard. According to the folklore, the Yule goats would show up on your doorstep, either bringing gifts for the well-behaved children or demanding gifts on behalf of Thor if you had been real, real naughty. <laughs> Eventually, the Yule goats evolved into a combination of Santa Claus, Father Christmas, and the Yule goat, who would bring gifts and drive a sleigh pulled by reindeer, not actual goats. Jen loved this idea when we were doing the Yule episode. I loved it so much. This idea of these two goats showing up on your doorstep going, you've been naughty, bitch. <laughs> you know what you did. Pay up. Pay Thor for that good time you had last week. <laughs> we know what you did and you know what you did. No more needs to be said, but Thor has come to collect his debt. You know, you just look at it and you'd be like, it was a good time, though. <laughs> You look at the beady black eyes of those two goats and you're like, oh shit, I've been found out. <laughs> Can I give this to you now before my husband finds out? <laughs> I mean, nobody cares what I do, so it's actually fine. <laughs> you think that, but Thor cares. Thor is watching you. I mean, he's no Helios. I don't think he's watching while you masturbate, but he's watching. Oh, I'm so disappointed. You realize I'm picturing Chris Hemsworth still. Chris Hemsworth isn't watching me masturbate? Why am I putting all that effort in? <laughs> You mean I can masturbate without all the makeup and outfits? Last time it was me abductifying Chris Hemsworth. This time it's you. I mean, it has been a good time, though, and the goats still know what I did. <laughs> anyway. So this section is going to sound real familiar because I literally just took it from our Yule episode. But I kind of felt like, look, I'm not going to be able to rephrase this as good as I got it last time. So you're going to have to bear with me. Enjoy this repeat from the Yule episode about the Yule goat. So the Yule goat may even be older than Norse mythology. It's tied to an ancient Indo-European tradition where the last sheaf of grain from the harvest was believed to have magical properties. 
the sheaf was saved to be used in midwinter festival celebrations. In Scandinavia, this was also called the Yule Goat or the Yule Bokken, among other things, such as an invisible spirit that appeared around Yule time to make sure the celebrations were being prepared the right way. Again, a little judgy. The Yule Goat is now invisibly stalking you and criticizing your housekeeping. <laughs> this is a real theme here. Especially in the winter. It's like, do you understand I have like seasonal affective disorder? Like, I, It's real hard getting out of bed and you're going to judge my housekeeping? Thanks. Yeah, it's not helpful. So in ancient proto-Slavic tradition, the Yule Goat was an actual goat. The god of the sun and the harvest of Ak was symbolized by a white goat. The Kaleida Festival a pre-Christian festival celebrated in Russia and Eastern Europe, involved a person dressed up as a goat demanding presents. Coincidence? I think not. I think not. Thor is still watching you. Interestingly, the Yule Goat shows up in Eastern European and Russian folklore too, which indicates a very old root. The ancient Germanic people lived in what's now today Eastern and Central Europe from the 3rd century BC onward. They may have originally come from Scandinavia around the 800s or 700s BC. Because it's so widespread throughout the Nordic countries, Russia, and Eastern Europe, the Yule Goat tradition may date from a time before all these people separated and spread out. Or it could simply have spread among peoples in cultural dissemination and trade. So there were some pranks associated with the Yule Goat. People in pre-Christian Scandinavia used to hide it in each other's houses. If you found the Yule Goat in your house, you were supposed to hide it in someone else's house without them knowing. The Yule Goat was eventually incorporated into some Christian versions of this holiday. Images from the 11th century depict a chained goat man figure led by St. Nicholas, signifying the saint's control over the influences of Satan, which definitely is sending up all the Krampus vibes to me right now. So it's possible that maybe Krampus has a fourth root, and that root is sort of Christian in this way, in this weird way. I don't know. Well, that's the more modern. Like, I think the reality is, like, by the time we get here, I would say he's come from all the way back from the Yule Goat. I think that what we could distill this to is there was a goat that was associated with the midwinter holiday, and that goat became demonized by the Christian religion, and that demonized version of the goat kind of spread outwards, but also um, played on some, some tropes that existed before. It's a little bit hard to unpick what was the Christian monk lens and what was the original pagan belief here. So Krampus's origins are a little bit of a mess. But no matter where the Krampus's origins came from, by the Middle Ages, he was deeply popular in the Alpine cultures, so much that, much like Perkta with her entourage of Perkton, the Alpine people threw parades that featured the Krampus. Essentially, when I was doing my research, like the point of this was like a lot of times the Christian community did not like this, but the Alpine peoples were like, no, no, this is a huge part of our culture and we're going to keep doing it. And sometimes they abided and put the Krampus in chains and sometimes they just put a bunch of Krampuses there and were like, no, screw you. The Krampus is the Krampus and he will be unchained for this set period of time. So while the people in the Alpine cultures were like, yes, this is how we do a Krampus parade, the Christian church was like, nope. We cannot, cannot, cannot have parades featuring a devil creature at Christmas time. There's just no way it's Christmas. But the Alpine people were not about to give up on the Krampus. They just were not. He was ancient, he was fun, and he was terrifying. And no one wanted to piss the Krampus off. So how did the church get around this? Well, they added St. Nicholas or Santa Claus to these parades. And the Krampus stopped being the headliner of the parade and became a sidekick of Santa Claus. 
No longer was the Krampus someone who brought merriment and laughs to the parade. Now he was just there to scare children into behaving. And Santa Claus, the guy with the toys and the church behind him, became the face of Christmas. But here's the thing. The Krampus is still beloved today. We love the Krampus. We love the Krampus. Yeah, and you can still see Krampus knock celebrations taking place on December 5th in Alpine towns throughout Switzerland, Austria, Germany, and many other places. Sometimes these celebrations involve a parade where people dress up as Krampus and walk the streets with their bundles or birch rods and sacks, scaring local children as they showed it's adult trick-or-treating here. That's right. If you're not scaring the children, are you even Krampusing? Exactly. But one of the biggest traditions that you can clearly see the influence of Krampus in is the infamous SantaCon. And before you say, wait a minute, that doesn't sound right, let Jenny explain. So, before there was SantaCon, a bar crawl that takes over many major cities in December featuring people dressed up as old Kris Kringle, drinking far too much, puking in the sidewalk, and brawling in the streets— there was Krampusloff. Santa's with their butts out. Santa's peeing on streets. Like, Santa's getting it on with other Santas. Like, can you imagine how horrifying this would be if you were, like, I don't know, my five-year-old niece? She would be so confused and scared. Krampusloff was the actual precursor to SantaCon, and it featured people dressing up as the Krampus and roaming the streets, essentially going house to house and acting out an adult form of trick-or-treating. People would don their Krampus suits and go house to house, playing tricks and asking for schnapps, the drink of Krampus, essentially to get them to go away. According to an article from Geek and Sundry, quote, Krampusloff is where people get drunk, light torches, and roam the streets dressed as the hairy, horned Krampus. It's traditional to offer these miscreants the traditional Krampus drink of schnapps, which might be a good idea, especially if they're wielding some particularly nasty-looking branches. It's like a more creative, if no less vomity, predecessor to the increasingly obnoxious SantaCon. So, there you have it, the history of the Krampus, from his origins as maybe a female alpine goddess, who did the work of both Santa Claus and the Krampus, to the demon of Christmas. If you're looking for a way to honor Perkta, the Krampus, and the spirit of the wild hunt this yuletide, might we suggest donning your Krampus suit or Krampus mask, as I have done for the recording of this episode, and going door to door asking for schnapps. It would certainly be one way to warm up on those cold winter nights. So that's it for this week. Join us next week for whatever we're talking about next. So in the meantime, catch up with us on social at Ancient Histfan on Twitter, or at Ancient History Fangirl on Facebook and Instagram. And consider joining our Patreon. Consider joining our Patreon because we are considering watching the movie Krampus, the horror film that came out in 2015, and giving you our hot takes. Don't you want to know what we thought about that movie? Don't we want to know what we thought about that movie? So anyway, we have some patrons to thank. Apologies to anyone whose name we mispronounce. Lindsay Gamble. Lackle Rackle. Carissa. Just Carissa. Cambria Craig, Emily McKenna, Francesca Guanini, Rachel Eliason, Martha De La Roche, Johanna Warate, and Dan Whitehead. Thank you all so much. Your support um, as a patron is why we're able to continue doing this podcast. Thank you so much for your support. 